This is WCNY's The Capitol Press Room, and returning our attention to what incarcerated writers and artists can publish from behind bars, which has been the subject of multiple regulatory actions by the Hochul administration this spring, and covered extensively by my next guest, Chris Gillardi, who investigates the criminal justice system for New York Focus, a nonprofit news outlet you can find at nysfocus.com. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks so much for having me. Really great to be here. It's our pleasure. So you reported in early June, about a week ago, about regulations put into place in May by the State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, which created a new process for publishing creative work by incarcerated New Yorkers. Can you explain what the state tried to put in place? So it was a new directive. There's there's existing directives about how incarcerated people can get materials for art and whatever sort of artistic and creative projects they want. But this particular directive was new. It went into effect on May 11th, and it was both confusing and broad. It, it was pretty lengthy. First of all, it established a pretty lengthy review process for um, incarcerated people to submit for approval to get any sort of creative works that they wanted out there published outside of prison. It gave pretty much purview to um, the prison superintendents to approve those projects. It also made any community organizations that wanted to publish incarcerated people's works, they had to go through a similar pretty lengthy review process. And it also established some pretty stringent rules for the projects that they might want to publish. First of all, it applied to all sorts of media, art, poetry, music. Journalism itself was not explicitly cited in the directive, but when I asked docs, they said that they did plan to apply it to op-eds and reporting and biographies and anything else that might go into a journalistic outlet, which really raised red flags for me when I first started covering this. And so like the list of rules included all sorts of things. Most concerning, I think, was a rule that barred incarcerated people from publishing things that could quote unquote jeopardize safety or security and publishing things that portrayed docs, the Department of Corrections and Community Supervision, or law enforcement in a light that could jeopardize safety and security. I mean, anybody who's familiar with prison systems, whenever they see those kinds of vague clauses, it, it really raises alarm bells because quite often prison systems will use that as an excuse to you know, prevent any anything from coming in or going out, any information that portrays them in a bad light. When I'm trying to send emails to incarcerated people that are just like copies of stories that I've published about prisons, I've had them blocked by prison censors for pretty similar reasons, usually citing like safety or security or something like that. Incarcerated people weren't allowed to mention their crimes in any of their writing or art. They weren't allowed to have any sort of like sexual content in, in the art. And lastly, the directive also prohibited incarcerated people from getting paid for anything that they published on the outside. If they did get paid or received any other sort of prize for entering a contest or something, the proceeds to that would, would be diverted to New York State's Office of Victim Services. And there's all sorts of like issues with that. There's there's federal court cases that say that that is unconstitutional. So yeah, that, that was the long and short of the directive. It was, it was pretty broad. 
Well, how, if at all, did State Department of Corrections and Community Supervision try to justify this directive? Did they say there was some sort of problem with the previous dynamic that they were looking to address? That's a great question. So they said that it was meant to actually expand incarcerated people's opportunities to publish creative works. I'm not exactly sure. It's it's still unclear to me how they plan to do that. I asked them follow-ups on that and they declined to answer. But that, that was their impetus for their stated impetus for it. I would take that with a hefty grain of salt. And that last element of the directive that you highlighted, the inability of incarcerated New Yorkers to get paid for their creative work under the new directive, where does that sort of fall in the legal framework of cases that have been around ever since the Son of Sam laws took effect 50 years ago? Is this a settled issue where the state was in a good position to do this? Or did you speak with legal experts who questioned the ability of the state to do something like that? That's a really great question. It's a little bit unclear to me. There there were some experts that I spoke to who said that this was pretty blatantly unconstitutional. It seems to be somewhat settled. So as you mentioned, there was the so-called Son of Sam law. There are similar Son of Sam laws throughout the country, but New York was the first to pass one in the 1970s. And it pretty much outlawed incarcerated people from making money off of works that mentioned their crime. It was really meant to prevent the profiting off of doing bad things. (laughs) In the 1990s, the U.S. Supreme Court almost unanimously struck down that type of law. And then New York State passed a kind of renewed Son of Sam law in the early 2000s that did not actually ban people from profiting from their crimes, but allowed victims to sue for proceeds. So that's what's currently in place. Some people that I, I was speaking to interpreted this as like, like a directive version of the old Son of Sam law, which the Supreme Court said violated the First Amendment. For listeners just joining us, you're listening to the Capitol Press Room, and we're speaking with Chris Gilardi, a criminal justice investigative reporter for New York Focus. Is New York unique in this directive, or are prison systems around the state implementing similar provisions and we're just following in their footsteps? That's a great question. This is actually something that I'm I'm trying to explore. I've been I've been speaking to some experts who track prison policy across the country in an effort to find out about this. The People that I spoke to who work with incarcerated writers across the country said that this was uniquely draconian and uniquely restrictive. But of course, prisons and jails and prison systems across the country do all sorts of creative things to to stifle the voices of people on the inside. So yeah, it's a little bit unclear, but but the sense I'm getting so far is that this would have been a bit of a new step in terms of censoring incarcerated people across the country. And what is the status of the directive now as we speak about a week after your first story about this issue published? I published the story not quite a month after it went into effect. It's worth noting, actually, that Docs publishes all of its directives online and all of its rules online, but this one was not online when I actually found out about it, and it wasn't published until I started asking questions about it. So we published the story, and about 30 hours later, um, there was tremendous kickback. I was actually a bit surprised at at the outrage over its revelation. 
And about 30 hours after uh, we published, Docs announced that it was rescinding the directive. They said that it wasn't being interpreted in a way that they meant and that they were actually going to, to revisit and talk to quote unquote stakeholders to develop uh, a new policy. Is there any indication what they meant by the incorrect interpretation as far as they saw it? They said that um, it was not meant to limit First Amendment protected speech, and they kind of referred back to what they were saying earlier about it actually being meant to um, expand people's ability to to publish works. I'm skeptical about that, to say the least, and I would perhaps uh, surmise that it was the public attention that really... uh, yeah, brought them to rescind the policy. Um, yeah, so we'll see, I guess, what they come up with um, after they talk to these stakeholders, whether they actually publish a new directive, how they're going to approach this now that they know the public eye is on it. I'm very curious to see, and we'll be reporting on it. Well, you mentioned engaging stakeholders moving forward. Is there any indication that state officials engage stakeholders in the first go around with this directive? Uh, no, it seems like quite the opposite. So when I started asking around, once I got a hold of the policy and I started asking around, um, the, some of the, like the top, um, organizations that publish incarcerated writers didn't know about it. Incarcerated people themselves often didn't know about it. I spoke to John Lennon, who is a very prolific, uh, writer who's incarcerated at Sullivan Correctional Facility. He's actually a contributing editor to Esquire. He writes for the New York Times quite frequently. Um, he mentors a lot of young or new journalists who are incarcerated, especially in his, in facilities that, um, he's at. And yeah, he was unaware of it even and was pretty outraged by it, even though it had been supposedly in place for a few weeks. It doesn't seem like Docs had yet started enacting it, like they hadn't actually censored anything yet by the time I published. But um, yeah, it was a few weeks into the policy and even he didn't know about it. So um, yeah, it seems like they kind of just went with it and, and were kind of flying by the seat of their pants. Well, finally... How does it feel as a journalist to see your work, your initial story, likely prompting a change in state policy? It's the, thanks for asking that question. It, it actually feels pretty, uh, pretty remarkable. It's 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 good to actually like see the power of journalism. You know, as like, I mean, I'm sure you know. As journalists, we just kind of like plug away and try to fight the good fight and hope that. Um, the work we're doing is having some intangible difference and and is doing good and informing decision makers and improving um, the public conversation. But very rarely do you get something like this where you publish something and you reveal something and you actually see the effects of it um, and see the effects of it quickly. Um, it, yeah, it was it was a good reminder that getting more information out there can actually uh, make a difference. Well, we've been speaking with Chris Gillardi. They investigate the criminal justice system for New York Focus, a nonprofit news outlet you can find at nysfocus.com, where you can find Chris's first story about this directive, as well as the second story about the directive being reversed. Chris, thank you so much for making the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Appreciate it. And for more Capital Press Room content, visit capitalpressroom.org or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. And if you listen to us from an Apple device, make sure to leave us a rating and a review so it helps other people find the show. 
Support for the Capitol Press Room provided by the New York State AFL-CIO, a federation of 3,000 unions fighting for working people by keeping New York State union strong. Visit unionstrongny.org for more information.